Our focus today is going to be on two chapters in the Gospel of John, chapters 18 and 19. If you have your Bible with you, you can turn to that passage and follow along. We're going to be reading basically the entirety of those two uh, chapters. Uh, we will have the script on the screen to follow as well. I'm going to simply act as your guide this morning. I will draw you to some of the highlights of the passages and uh, point some things out to you as we move our way through. I'm taking you to John's gospel because in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, he says this, that Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John says that his purpose in writing comes down to two things about our faith and what he wants us to believe. He says he wants us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So he chose signs. He chose the miraculous stories. He chose the teaching of Jesus very intentionally so that you might be drawn to the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. And second, as you come to believe that, that you would believe and by believing you would have life in his name. John simply declares that this life that is going to be yours, he, all through his gospel, he describes it as an abundant life. He describes it as a full life. He says it is an eternal life that is ours through Jesus Christ. He describes it as a free life, a peace-filled life. And so we want to use the gospel of John and look for those purposes. And I'm praying that in our reading today, that it will lead you into belief, or perhaps back to believing, or perhaps simply wash over you again with the faith, hope, and joy of the gospel that is yours, to recognize in a fresh way that Jesus is who he has claimed to be. So as we read, I'm going to encourage you to watch for the signs, some marker points, some focal points. And I do all of this so that as in this service we join together, that we can finally experience the cross. This comes out of a quote by a man by the name of Henry Blackaby, wrote a book called Experiencing the Cross. And on Good Fridays, I often go back to that book, and, and, the, and part of it, he gives this quote, which I've always appreciated and helps me come to Good Friday. He says this, The cross is not a doctrine to be discussed. Okay, we're good to go. So the cross is not a doctrine to be discussed, but rather a fact to be experienced. Just think about that for a second. So it's not just something to be talked about, but rather the cross tangibly should become ours, that we participate in it. The cross is not just something that Jesus did, but rather he invites us in the participation in our salvation and coming to know Jesus, that in his suffering and in his uh, forgiveness of sin, that we enter into it. And this is where I hope we can go today. That by the time we end the service, that you will be washed over with the facts of his death, but you will enter into the reality of the cross's power and it's over sin, and it's hope, and it's peace for all of us. So we begin reading in John chapter 18. The context is the last Passover meal with Jesus' disciples has already taken place. In chapter 17, Jesus ends that meal in John's gospel with a wonderful pastoral prayer. Jesus submits himself to the Father, and then he prays for his followers, and then he finally prays for all followers that are to come. His church he prays for us out of that experience and the fellowship and unity that we are going to experience. And then we read in 18 verse 1 that when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. And on the other side was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Judas was there who betrayed him and knew the place because Jesus had often met there with the disciples. So Judas came to the garden guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, 
and weapons. Jesus, knowing, that all, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Think about that for a moment. They drew back and fell to the ground when Jesus said, I am he. What just happened there? What happened in the the moment that Jesus somehow, in that statement, I am he, his authority, his presence, somehow overwhelms those who came to arrest him? I mean, think about it. They were coming to arrest Jesus. They came with swords. They came with weapons. They came to exert their power over him. They came to exert their authority. And yet what happens? Jesus says, I am he. And they fall back and they fall down. Falling down is a, is a picture of fear. It's a picture of submission. It's a picture of people that recognize they are in presence of someone greater than they are. And these power agents fall back and fall down as Jesus says, I am he. Do you understand the authority that rested with Jesus? And somehow in that moment, we get a flicker of it that is seen by those that follow him. Some would hear the echoes of God revealing himself to Moses. Do you remember the burning bush? And Moses says, who should I say you are? And he says, I am. And Jesus says, I am he. Was there an echo of the presence of God that was understood in that moment? It's hard to say. But there was something in that moment, and we see there, and John, I think, is giving us a sign. He's pointing it out to us. See who Jesus is. We continue, verse 7, Jesus again says, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth. I told you I'm he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. And this happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Again, stop and think about that. That the words he spoke would be fulfilled. John again is saying, and all through this passage we'll hear that, that the words are being fulfilled. The prophecy is being fulfilled. John signposts. He keeps pointing it out and saying, this is what Jesus had promised. But look at what Jesus had promised in this case. He basically said that I won't lose any that have been given to me. Jesus promised for holding those that come to him. He can be trusted to accomplish all that he has promised. This is who the Savior is. Verse 10, and then Simon Peter had a sword, drew it, and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. Someone said Peter didn't have great aim. He only got the ear. (laughs) It's probably a good thing. The servant's name was Malchus. And Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Again, see what Jesus is saying here. Impetuous Peter rises to the occasion. And John kind of just tells us he cut off his ear. Luke says that he actually healed the man following this. But John just gives us his reaction. And he says, Peter, stand down. Peter, don't you understand what's going on? I have a cup to drink that comes from my father. And Peter, I'm planning to submit to it. Peter was rising up and saying, Jesus, someone needs to take control here. And Jesus is saying, Peter, I am in control. Peter, this is the plan. Peter, everything is going according to the higher purposes of my Father. Hebrews 12 says that Jesus saw a greater joy before him so that he was able to endure the cross. I think you see that coming through here where he says, I will accept this cup of suffering because the joy that is salvation to be found through the cross is laid out before me. The joy of my church, of my people, of all of you is laid out before me. It's all in the Father's will. We must see Jesus doing all of this for us. The second Adam proving his obedience For just as death reigned through Adam, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. 
We see the Father's love being poured out. We see the Son's obedience going to the cross. Let's stand and sing together. Father, help us to see with fresh eyes what Jesus accomplished for us in paying that ransom. Amen. You may be seated. Continuing in chapter 18 at verse 12, we read that the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. A little bit of history for you there. Annas was the high priest from A.D. 6 to 15, and his five sons followed on in kind of a high priestly dynasty after him. And Annas was the power behind them. He was one of the most powerful high priests that there was. He was obviously in the early part of Jesus' life, and then Caiaphas was the high priest that took over from him. But it's why Jesus was first taken to him. This was kind of the interrogation. This was a 
an interrogation by Annas of, of, of Jesus in order to see where they might be able to um, get him to really incriminate himself in some way. And we'll see that coming up a little later. But then Caiaphas, John wants us to recognize, was the leader who made an incredible statement way back in John chapter 11. Caiaphas, the acting high priest, highlights really an ironic statement that he had made after they were concerned that Jesus, after raising Lazarus from the dead, was growing in such popularity and really overwhelming some of the religious leaders' popularity and even uh, becoming so popular that they were worried about what might happen to Israel if Rome got wind of that. And so they decided then that they would have to put him to death. And Caiaphas made the statement at that time that John highlights that it would be good if one man died for all the people. And that's when Caiaphas said that back in John 11, John goes on to make this comment. Caiaphas did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. John's just helping us to recognize how many different forces were in effect against Jesus. And yet none of them was outside the plan of God. And Caiaphas makes this statement thinking that, you know, for Jesus to die would help Israel. And it did, but not in the way Caiaphas expected. Jesus' death was going to help the Jewish nation, but all nations. That Jesus in dying definitely would be the salvation as the sacrifice for the sin of the world. And John points that out as these two trials begin to take place. We continue to read in verse 19, and just a note if you're following along, I'm skipping the passages that talk about Peter's denial. Uh, just too much to read in one day. But down to verse 19. The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus said, I've spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. And when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? And then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Do you see what happens here? Jesus is identifying the purpose behind the questioning. It would appear that the questioning by the high priest is more about drawing Jesus into some kind of false statement, hopefully, into some kind of doctrinal controversy, into some reason that they could bring charges against them, but Jesus would have none of it that we saw through his ministry so often when they came to try and trap him in his words. And Jesus says, I've spoken openly and in public. Ask anyone. And so rather than answering that directly, he says, ask your sources. And of course, they had been doing that over and over and over again. And they had no grounds to charge him on any of the normal grounds that they would have within their laws. So they're forced to take him elsewhere. So in verse 28, we read that the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate comes out to them and asks, what charges are you bringing? Well, if he were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. In other words, we don't have any charges, but we want you to come up with something. Pilate says, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone. We have no right to execute. And this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Do you see what just happened there? You see that there's a fulfillment here? That Jesus had been talking about his kind of death. And each step along the way, everything that Jesus has said is being proven right. Everything that Jesus has talked about, his life and his coming death, is now being fulfilled, even in the turning him over from the Jewish authorities to the Roman hands. Because, you see, if it was under the Jewish authorities, there would have been death by stoning. But under the Roman authorities, it would be death by crucifixion. 
a death on the tree which is prophesied for the Messiah through Old Testament prophecies. And so here again you see the movement of God behind the scenes and bringing all things into order just as they have been said. This is the way God has planned it and Jesus is giving himself over to this. We continue to read, Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? That's your own idea? Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you've done? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, retorts Pilate. And with this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and says, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him, give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Let's go back into that exchange for a moment, in case we missed it. Two key points get raised here that elevate our understanding of the complexity of the person of Jesus. In the questioning time, they begin to talk about kingdoms. And Pilate is desperate to find a charge against Jesus. And he says over and over again, I can't find a charge. There's What wrong has this man done? But the idea of kingdom comes up, and in a sense, Jesus helps him out. Jesus is handing a charge to him. Because the only charge that Pilate can end up with is sedition. He's saying he's a king. He's being elevated to a king. And so Jesus says, well, my kingdom isn't of this world. It's from another place. And Jesus really gives that over to Pilate. And Pilate latches onto it. He, he's not fully convinced, but it's the best that he's got. And so Jesus, again, is moving down this path and, and knows that all this has to take place and is willingly to take up the cup that the Father is laying upon him. There can only be one king in Rome. So Pilate, as he goes out to the people and they choose Barabbas instead of Jesus, At the end of that passage, he begins the crucifixion process. And Jesus is sentenced then to be crucified. Verse 19, Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twist together a crown of thorns and they push it onto his head. They mock him with purple robes, the robes of royalty, and they go to him again and again, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slap him in the face. Probably not a slap, an open-handed, but a backhanded throw across the face. And then he comes out and the Jews gathered there and he says, I'm bringing him out to you, although I find no basis for a charge, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, the robes of the royalty, of majesty, of the kingship. And Jesus says, here's the man. And they shout, crucify, crucify. Just reflect for a moment on the words of the suffering that's beginning in the life of Jesus that he's having to endure. He's flogged. He's humiliated. Again and again they come to him and they they slap him. And though Pilate does not find a basis for a charge, he goes along with that royal theme and he presents to them the man. The man dressed with a crown and with a robe. And he gives to them their king. And the response is, crucify, crucify, crucify him. So the crucifixion is to begin. Let's sing these songs together. Thank you. 
So Pilate answered them, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. There you hear their primary reasoning. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid and went back inside the palace. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus. Jesus gave him no answer. You refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have power either to forgive you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power if not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, or Gabbatha. And it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Look what has just happened. That the religious leaders are now claiming loyalty with Caesar. Those who have been so opposed and against Rome now are recognizing there's only one king, it should be Caesar in their thinking, to, in order to bring these charges up against Jesus. So Pilate says, then here is your king. But they shout, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, they answer. And finally Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the final blow is struck. All the pieces are in place. And this man from Galilee, the wandering prophet, the Messiah, will be put to death. Problem solved, Pilate thought. Problem solved, the Jewish leaders thought. But we know the rest of the story. But let's sing again of that cross. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which is known as Golgotha. There they crucified him and with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. And Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. You see, this was meant in a slap in the face to the Jewish leaders, that, that sign, the king of the Jews. Pilate was saying their so-called king is hung before them as an example to all usurpers. The irony, of course, is that this is the king of the Jews. In fact, this is the king of creation. This is the king of the heavens. This is the son of God, wrongfully accused, innocent, yet giving himself up to the cross. In 1 Peter, he writes, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. 
He entrusted instead himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. This is our Savior. This King on the cross is our Savior who becomes our Lord in faith. Let's sing again. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of a hyssop plant, and lifted it to his lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He fulfilled the law. He met the Father. And his death fulfilled the scriptures. It is finished. But recognize what else he said. Or what happened. He gave up his spirit. He recognized that his life was not taken. It was given. We saw it back in the garden. They came to arrest him, but he really gave himself to them. We see it in the trial. He gave them the charge. We see it here, that he bows his head and gives up his spirit. Philippians says, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. His death was an obedience. His death was his submitting to the Father's will. His death was God's plan for our salvation. His death was the lamb giving himself up. Paul says in Corinthians that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
You see, we are here now at the foot of the cross, seeing the death of Jesus, his body broken for us, his blood shed for our sins that we might forgive and, and that we might have life in him. That life is to be one with God once more, to be reborn. And so his body given, his blood given, and this is the Lord's table. This is why we take this cup and we take this bread and we share it in together is to say that we will participate, that we will share in the cross together. On the way in, I hope that you were encouraged to pick up a cup if you would like to take communion this morning. If you didn't, there's going to be a song played. Feel free to get up and go pick a cup up from the table. Just going to draw our attention to 1 Corinthians 11 and then a song's going to play. And as that song plays, you'll be invited to simply share in the body and blood of Jesus. 1 Corinthians says that on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim his death this morning because he also rose again. We proclaim his death because it's impact in our lives. Corinthians also calls us, though, to come in a worthy manner, and so we are called to examine ourselves before we eat and drink from the cup. It's called to examine ourselves to know that we are of faith, that we have accepted Christ as Savior, that we eat worthily of his body and of his blood. It's a call to come in confession, to be cleansed, because it was for our sin that he died, and so we should come and find a cleansing here again. It's called to be a remembrance, to simply reflect on all that Jesus has done for us. And it is a thanksgiving. We give thanks that we are one in him. And so a song's going to play, and we'll have some time really of just quiet and listening to that, but it's a time for you to take this bread, and when you feel ready, you peel the top and eat the bread, and then you peel the second layer and you drink the cup, but it's participating in his body, his blood given for you. Let's share together.
Father, we thank you that you love the world so much that you would send your only son. And Jesus, we thank you that you came. We thank you that while we were your enemies, Christ, you died for us. That in our sin, you would choose to come to live a perfect, sinless life. And at the end of your life, to give your life up for ours. We thank you that you went through that torturous crucifixion. That you chose to have your blood shed and your body broken. You were whipped. You were beaten. You were mocked. You were spat upon. You went through the mockery of a trial. And that you had and suffered the wrath of the Father upon yourself for our sin. We thank you that you did this because of your great love for us, longing to reconcile us to yourself. And today we celebrate your death, Lord Jesus Christ. We celebrate that you would die on our behalf. We celebrate that you would do so to grant us life. We celebrate that you would be broken, that your blood would be shed for us. And so today we celebrate your death, thanking you for this great sacrifice, thanking you in the name of Jesus, our crucified and resurrected Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Now it was the day of preparation. The next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that Scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another Scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Again, those highlights. John saying the Scripture is now fulfilled. His bones weren't broken. They had to pierce him and the flow of blood and water signifying death. And there was one on site who saw it and gave testimony. It's a true testimony. Jesus died on that cross. It's so important to recognize that he did die. It's what makes Sunday so wonderful. Because he rose again. But in his death, we complete our service today. We're going to close with a benediction song. There'll be one final passage that we places Jesus in the tomb at the end of John 19. It's again just to understand totally that his death was complete and that in his death we have life for it could not hold him. If death could hold him, then salvation would be wiped out, but it did not hold him and justification is ours. If you're here today and some of this is not making sense in your heart, if you've never known what it is to have the life of Christ within you, the life of that eternal life, talk to us so you'll know what salvation means. As we end our service, though, we're going to end with a final song. And I'm going to give you instructions now for how we're going to clear the service. We need to be a little more careful because some of the public health rules. So... First off, some may want to leave this room in a little place of quiet. If you want to sit and reflect after the service further, just to read some scripture or pray. So I'd ask that you kind of leave the gymnasium just as a quiet place as people want to reflect. And then in order to kind of keep our traffic flow, if, if you want to visit with some folks and are able to just take it outside, that's probably the best. You can leave by the door over here that goes right out to James Street or the back door there takes you out towards the parking lot. If you want to pick up some bread or vegetables, you can leave out, but go through the foyer and right out to Picton. That just helps us to keep people moving. If you need to pick your children up, go down the stairs and then come up through the main doors. And then leave in a place of quiet. We can fellowship some, but just be aware of some of those rules. 
And then as we complete our service today, we're going to sing, we're going to read that passage, sing a final last verse, and then as mentioned, let's just leave this as a place of reflection and quiet for God to complete his blessing on us. Let's sing together. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Jesus, the Lamb of God, died for the sin of the world laid in that tomb. It's finished. Tremble, tremble, tremble. 